Lesson 13 for December 20-26, to 26, The Everlasting Gospel. Sabbath afternoon, December 20. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're coming to the end of this quarter's series of lessons on the book of James, and our final study is about the everlasting gospel. And as we read your word, as we delve into what it says, as you speak to us through your Holy Spirit, may we grow, may we come to serve you more and be more like you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Jeremiah 31 verse 3. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Let's read that again. Jeremiah 31 verse 3. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. In our study of James, we've looked at a number of issues connected with the gospel and made some comparisons with other biblical authors. It is not always easy to understand clearly how what James says fits with other parts of Scripture, especially when it comes to something as central as the gospel itself. But as we saw, it does. And this is very important too, because the gospel is the foundation of our last day commission to preach the everlasting gospel to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, as it says in Revelations 14, verse 6. In this, our final week, we will focus on basic questions regarding the everlasting gospel, which is salvation by faith, a belief taught all through the Bible, including the book of James. The crucial point to remember is that the Bible does not contradict itself, especially on something as basic as salvation. By finishing the quarter with a look at how the gospel appears in the Bible, we can better see how James fits this larger picture of God's plan of redemption. Sunday, December 21, the Gospel in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2 reads, For we also have had the Gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. This verse is startling in its implications. Foremost is that the Gospel, not simply good news, but the good news, was preached in the Old Testament. Second, it was preached then, just as in New Testament times. There is no hint that there was any difference in the message itself. The problem, therefore, was not with the message, but with the way it was heard. Today, too, different people can hear the same gospel message very differently. How crucial, then, that we surrender ourselves in utter faith to the teaching of the Word, so that when the gospel is preached, we hear it correctly. Question. Look at the following verses and summarize the gospel message in each. 
first of all, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. And Psalm 32, verses 1 to 5. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. And Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 to 11. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, 
from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Did you notice a common refrain? God intervenes to save us. He forgives our sins and puts enmity in us towards sin so that we can be willing and obedient, as it says in Isaiah 1.19. 1. Jesus died for the many, bore their or our iniquities, and justifies the undeserving. The new covenant is different from the old covenant because the law is written in the heart and sins are remembered no more, as it says in Hebrews 8.12. In short, forgiveness and the new birth are a package. Justification and sanctification represent God's solution to the sin problem. These passages could be multiplied for the message is the same throughout the Bible. Despite our sin, God loves us and has done all that is possible to save us from it. And so to finish today, how can we, as people who believe in the importance of keeping the law, protect ourselves from the error of believing that law-keeping is what justifies us? Why is that not always so easy to do? Monday, December 22, The Gospel Made Flesh Some have a hard time finding the gospel in the gospels. The teachings of Jesus can seem legalistic, but only if we fail to hear the rest of the story. Most people in Israel at the time of Jesus consider themselves to be in a good position before God. They supported the temple by paying the required tax and offering the appropriate sacrifices. They abstained from unclean foods, circumcised their sons, kept the festival days and the Sabbaths, and generally tried to keep the law as taught by their religious leaders. Then John came and cried, Repent, and be baptized. Furthermore, Jesus said a new birth was needed in John chapter 3, and that, as in Matthew 5.20, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus was saying, you need what you do not have, your works are not good enough. Question. Read Luke chapter 15 verses 11 to 32 and Luke 18 verses 9 to 17. How do these parables illustrate the gospel? Luke 15, beginning at verse 11. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood, and not many days after the young son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? 
I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead, and is alive again, and was lost, and is found. And Luke 18, verses 9 to 17. Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then they also brought infants to him, that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. In the parable of the prodigal son, the son is lost and does not know it. Eventually he begins to see his father's love in a new way and longs to return. His pride is gone. Hoping for acceptance as a servant, he is astonished to be lavished with honour by his father. The relationship is not just restored... It is transformed. A similar reversal of expectations appears in the second parable. The righteous Pharisee is ignored by God, while the sinful tax collector is not only accepted, but leaves justified, forgiven, and free from guilt. Both stories help us to see God more clearly, as a father 
and as a justifier of the ungodly. When he describes the cup of crushing grapes as my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins, Jesus suffers as the real Passover lamb, the death that should have been ours. And that was quoting from Matthew 26, verse 28, and we're going to compare that with Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Thus salvation is free to us because he, Jesus, paid the full price for it. So to finish today, what hope can you take from each of these parables for yourself? In what ways can you relate to some of the people in them? And what should your answer tell you about what you might need to change in your spiritual life? Tuesday, December 23, the Gospel in Paul. Like many of his countrymen, Paul thought he was in good spiritual standing, but then he saw Jesus as, as it says in Galatians 2.20, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Suddenly he saw himself not saved, but lost, not God's servant, but God's enemy, not righteous, but the chief of sinners. The scales fell from his eyes, in other words, in his reading of the Old Testament. God's revelation to him personally and through the Scriptures transformed his heart and changed his life forever. We will not understand Paul's epistles unless we recognize these basic facts which produced them. Question. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 to 16 in this light, and then verses 2 to 6. What does Paul identify here as the crucial step? Second Corinthians 3 verse 14, But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, let's go back to verses 2 to 6. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The meaning of the old covenant becomes clear only when one turns to the Lord in verse 16. Jesus is the way to salvation. It all begins and ends with him. Israel, by trusting in their own obedience, as Paul did before his conversion, experienced the old covenant as a minister of death. Why? Because, as it says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned, including the people of Israel. 
and so the commandments could only condemn them. By contrast, believers in Corinth were a letter of Christ, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Verse 3. Question. Read Romans one sixteen and 17, and chapter 3, verses 24 to 26. How does Paul define the gospel? What do we receive through Christ by faith? Well, first of all, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. And Romans 3, beginning at verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The gospel is the power of God to save all who believe. Righteousness is based not on what we do, but on what Christ has done for us, which we claim by faith. It is a belief that grows from faith to faith, as it says in Romans 1.17. What Paul means by this is unpacked in the rest of Romans, the heart of which is found at the end of chapter 3. Through Christ we have redemption. God has brought us back by paying for our sins, justification, we are cleared of guilt and cleansed by grace, and forgiveness, God accepts us back and forgets our past sins. Amazingly, God, through the sacrifice of Christ, proves himself to be just in justifying the ungodly who have put their faith in Jesus. Wednesday, December 24, The New Covenant The book of Hebrews describes the New Covenant as better than the Old Covenant. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1, 2 and 6. Let's read that. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. And verse 6, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. The obvious question then is, why did God establish the old covenant if it was faulty? The problem, however, was not with the covenant, but with the response of the people to it. Question. Read Hebrews chapter 7 verse 19, chapter 8 verse 9, chapter 10 verses 1 to 4. What problems with the old covenant are mentioned? 
Well, firstly, Hebrews 7.19, For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope, through which we draw near to God. And Hebrews 8 verse 9, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. And Hebrews 10 verses 1 to 4. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The people did not remain faithful to the covenant, as it said in Hebrews 8.9, but were disobedient and rebellious. This, together with the fact that the animal sacrifices of the old covenant could never take away sins, as we've just read, meant that the sin problem remained. Only the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all could atone for sins, including those committed under the Old Covenant, Hebrews 10.10. And that was because, as it says in Hebrews 7.19, the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God through the promise of the new covenant. In one sense... The New Covenant is not new at all, because since the promise in Eden of the seed who would bruise the serpent's head, the plan of salvation has always been predicated on the death of Christ, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And that comes from Revelation 13 verse 8. We'll also look at Jeremiah 32 verse 40, Hebrews 13, 20 and 21, and John 13 34. First of all, Jeremiah 32, verse 40, And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. And Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. And John 13 verse 24, Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. The covenant of grace, we read in The Faith I Live By, page 77, is not a new truth, for it existed in the mind of God from all eternity. That is why it is called the everlasting covenant. End of quote. On the other hand, as we saw with Paul, something special happens when we turn to the Lord. God promised, in connection with the everlasting covenant, in Jeremiah 32.40, I will put into their hearts reverence for me, so that they do not turn away from me. Without faith, bringing animal sacrifices was almost like making payment for sins. 
gazing at Jesus instead, who endured the cross, despising the shame, and who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, as we read in Hebrews 12, 2 and 3, reveals the immeasurable cost of sin and the good news that the cost has been paid by someone else through the blood of the everlasting covenant, as it says in Hebrews 13.20. This new covenant transforms how we look at everything, such as the commandment to love one another. It's not really new. It occurs in Leviticus 19.18, except in that we are not just to love our neighbour as ourselves, but as I, Jesus, have loved you, as it says in John 13.34. So to finish today, how can we ever learn to love others as Jesus has loved us? Thursday, December 25, the climax of the Gospel. Revelation 10, 7 reads, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Significantly, Revelation 10, 7 is the only other verse in Revelation, besides Revelation 14, 6, that specifically refers to preaching the Gospel. The Greek word translated preached is evangelizo, to proclaim good news. These two chapters are special for Seventh-day Adventists because we find our calling and commission described in them. In other words, God has specifically commissioned us in a way he has no other group, to proclaim the everlasting gospel. As we have seen, the gospel is the same from Genesis to Revelation. The law is the same. The covenant is the same. Jesus Paul and James all affirm that the gospel is the same one believed by Abraham. We read that in John 8.56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And Romans 4 verse 13, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And James 2.21 and 20-23. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Some have difficulty with this assertion only because they define the gospel more narrowly than scripture. Abraham's obedient faith, however, originated through his foreseeing Jesus' sacrifice. We do not need to balance faith with works in order to be saved. Faith alone is sufficient. But it must not be an intellectual faith as the devils had nor a presumptuous faith that claims the promises of God without complying with the conditions of salvation. Rather, it must be a faith that works. Question. Why are the references in Revelation 12.17 and Revelation 14.12 
to keeping the commandments and to the testimony and faith of Jesus significant in the context of the everlasting gospel. Let's read those texts again. Revelation 12:17 and the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. And Revelation 14:12 Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The decisive issue at the end of time is whom will we worship and obey? The God who made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters, as it says in Revelation 14.7, or the beast and his image. Obedience to the commandments, including the Sabbath, through the faith of Jesus, signifies those who remain faithful to the end. True religion demands both faith and obedience. As we read in the Great Controversy, pages 453 and 454, Though often in the midst of reproach and persecution a constant testimony has been borne to the perpetuity of the law of God and the sacred obligation of the creation Sabbath. These truths, as presented in Revelation 14 in connection with the everlasting gospel, will distinguish the Church of Christ at the time of His appearing. For as the result of the threefold message it is announced, Here are they that keep the commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus. Friday, December 26. From The Signs of the Times, March 31, 1890, Ellen White wrote, We need to come up to a higher standard, to go forward and claim our exalted privileges. We should walk humbly with God, make no proud boasts of perfection of character, but in simple faith claim every promise in the word of God, for they are for the obedient, not for the transgressors of God's law. We are simply to believe the testimony of God and have entire dependence on Him and all possibility of self-glory or pride will be removed. We are indeed saved by faith, not by a passive faith, but by the faith which works by love and purifies the soul. The hand of Christ can reach the veriest sinner and bring him back from transgression to obedience. But no Christianity is so lofty that it can soar above the requirements of God's holy law. This would be beyond Christ's power to help. It would be outside of his teachings and his example. For he says, I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And all who follow Christ will render obedience to God's holy law. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. Discuss the various gospel emphases in the teachings of Jesus, James and Paul, including similarities and differences between them. How, by placing them together and seeing the whole picture, can we protect ourselves from falling into either legalism or a cheap grace? 2. When feeling discouraged about your spiritual state, what gospel promises can you claim to help keep you from discouragement? Why, even in the darkest times, must you never give up? And why is the promise of Christ's righteousness as a gift to undeserving sinners the key to protecting you 
from giving up. And three, the three angels' messages connect creation very closely to redemption and salvation. So does John chapter 1 verses 1 to 14. Why are these two topics so closely related? How does this close connection help explain why the Sabbath is such a central component of God's law? How does this close tie help us understand the centrality of the Sabbath in the final conflict of the last days? Inside Story Our mission story this week is a continuation from last week. It's titled Under Arrest Part 2 and it's by Giovanni Zaldivar. At the detention centre we were searched and police took our remaining invitations. Then the police officer took our names and addresses and the names of the schools we attended. We hinted that our arrest would be reported to our school and could end our chances at attending college one day. Meanwhile, the woman returned to the church and told the members what had happened. The choir practice immediately became a prayer meeting as the believers sought God's protection for us. My mother and the pastor went to the park and tried to find us, but no one knew where we had been taken. Then they went to the central police station and demanded to know where we were. At first the police said they didn't know, but the pastor insisted the police find us immediately. After a few phone calls, the officer told them that we were in the juvenile centre a mile away. Inside the room at the juvenile centre, some of the girls began to cry. We had been kept locked up for several hours without food or water. It was almost sunset, and so we started singing, and our courage grew. Then, from down the hall, I heard my mother's voice arguing with the officer who had arrested us. After several minutes, another police officer came in and told us we were free to go. But when we asked for the invitation cards, the police said we couldn't have them. As we started walking toward the church, I stopped and pulled some invitation cards out of my sock, where I had quickly hidden them. I explained to my mother and friends that when the police weren't looking, I put invitations on the desks at the police station. Everyone laughed, and on the way back to the church we gave out the remaining cards. When we arrived back at the church, we were surprised at how many members had gathered to pray for us. Everyone listened as we told them what had happened. Then the group prayed once more, thanking God for keeping us safe. We especially prayed for the officer who arrested us, and the police who guarded us, that God would direct them to come to the church and hear his message of freedom in Christ. Your reader this week has been Dr. Percy Harold. The lessons have been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember that God is always faithful. <laughs>